First, deleted text of the Secret Service. Now, it's Homeland Security with vanished records. The lead starts right now. Messages reportedly missing from key days and weeks before the Capitol attack. And we're just learning this now, as the January 6th committee shares more of its secrets with the Justice Department's criminal probe. Plus, rooftop rescues, lives lost, and hundreds still missing. Eastern Kentucky braces for even more rainfall after already devastating flooding. And she broke barriers as the youngest woman in Congress. Now, almost three decades after she left public office, this fighter wants to get back in the political arena. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Casey Hunt, in today for Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and another major development in what's been a monumental week for January 6th investigators. The latest twist? More missing text messages from the period leading up to the Capitol attack. According to The Washington Post, texts from Donald Trump's acting Homeland Security chief, Chad Wolf, and his top deputy, Ken Cuccinelli, are MIA. The Department of Homeland Security reportedly claims the texts were lost in a reset of their government phones at the end of the Trump administration. Today, a source tells CNN that the January 6th committee did interview Chad Wolf several months ago, around the same time that they met with Cuccinelli. But that was before the committee learned about the possible deletion of records. These revelations come on the heels of exclusive CNN reporting that the Justice Department is preparing to fight in court to force former White House officials to testify about Trump's conversations and his actions around January 6th. CNN's Ryan Noble starts off our coverage from Capitol Hill with new details about even more witnesses from the Trump White House cooperating with the January 6th committee. The Department of Justice is inching closer and closer to former President Donald Trump. New CNN reporting reveals that prosecutors are girding for a big fight over executive privilege to force witnesses to testify about the role Trump may have played in the events leading up to January 6th. When courts have considered these uh, separation of powers uh, issues in the context of criminal cases, they haven't really looked favorably uh, toward the White House and the presidency. Now, the, the biggest and the most obvious one uh, is, is the United States versus Nixon. Trump himself is not considered to be a target yet. But the list of Trump officials who have already cooperated with the select committee and are now cooperating with the DOJ is growing. It comes as the select committee has begun the process of handing over transcripts from their interviews to federal investigators. They have uh, indicated they want to have access uh, to a certain number of transcripts. And uh, we've negotiated back and forth and the committee uh, sees a way to make that available to them. The committee has also stepped up their outreach and engagement with cabinet officials. Former acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney met with the committee Thursday and said investigators are very interested in the players pushing false claims of election fraud and their access to the White House. That sort of inner circle of people that have been described by others as the crazies, how did they get the access that they did when they did? Among the other cabinet officials they've spoken to, former DHS Secretary Chad Wolf. The Washington Post reporting that text messages from both Wolf and his deputy Ken Cuccinelli were lost from their government-issued electronic devices. In a tweet thread in response to the story, Wolf said he handed over his phone intact when he resigned after January 6th. Meanwhile, the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who Cassidy Hutchinson said was among the Republican leaders who pleaded for Trump to call his supporters off, claimed today he doesn't remember calling her. If I talk to her, I don't remember it. If it was coming up here, 
I don't think I wanted a lot of people coming up to the Capitol, um, but I don't remember the conversation. And today is scheduled to be the last day for the House of Representatives before they leave on their long August recess. And that means that the committee is not expected to have any public work until September hearings, which are planned in the next few months. And that means committee members are going to be working behind closed doors, preparing for those September hearings. Casey, I just spoke with Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland. He said he specifically focused on the efforts of extremist groups to cause chaos here on January 6th. And that is work he's going to continue through August and into September. Brian Nobles on Capitol Hill, thank you so much for that report. And sticking with the theme of missing text messages, we have some new CNN exclusive reporting. Sources say the Homeland Security Inspector General first learned of missing Secret Service texts in May of 2021. That is more than a year before he alerted the January 6th committee. CNN's Whitney Wilde is part of the team breaking this story. Um, Whitney, do we have any idea why it took so long for DHS to notify the committee? Well, certainly that is a question that every oversight body who has has really any role in trying to untangle this wants to know. We don't have a direct answer on that yet, but it's something that we're continuing to figure out. Uh, but Casey, what we do know is that these congressional oversight committees had said that the inspector general was aware of the missing text messages as of December 2021. But now sources are telling CNN that the Secret Service had notified the office of the uh, the office of the Department of Homeland Security's inspector general that the text messages had been erased. Uh, They told them that they had this problem with the text messages being erased in May of 2021. So this information getting to DHS OIG seven months earlier than we previously knew. The Secret Service has explained that the text messages were lost in previously scheduled data migration of agents' cell phones and the committee and Kufari are uh, both interested in these text messages because, Casey, they could shed a lot of light on what happened that day. So uh, certainly could be uh, I- important information that we just yeah, don't have now. It absolutely could be. So the Secret Service knew that the data was lost after the migration. Did, did they do anything about that? So here's what they did. They they realized basically shortly after this data migration had concluded that the information really was gone. And the problem here is that key personnel didn't realize that these text messages would not be backed up anywhere. They didn't realize how absolute this data migration was. So to try to rectify the situation, they attempted to go back to the cellular, cellular provider to get that information back, to get that text message content back, but they couldn't do it. Uh, and Casey, again, that information communicated from the Secret Service to the OIG in May of 2021. Then in July, uh, investigators for the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General's office told DHS they were no longer seeking these text messages. So this timeline uh, stopping and starting, Casey, but the Mm -hmm. bottom line here is if they couldn't retrieve this information back in May of 2021, and then in July, at some point clearly had concluded that they, you know, for whatever reason, didn't need it or said that they were going to stop looking into it. Then they restarted this investigation in December. The bottom line here is in that amount of time, it's very unlikely that they will get these records back. However, congressional leaders are not taking uh, any of these answers and saying, OK, well, this is over. Uh, just minutes ago, the uh, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee tweeted that he is calling on Attorney General Merrick Garland to investigate this. So a lot more to learn. Casey. Pretty significant escalation there. Whitney Wild, thanks very much for that reporting. We really appreciate it. Let's discuss all of this with former senior investigator for the January 6th committee, John Wood, and former chief counsel to then Vice President Joe Biden, Victoria Nurse. Thank you both for being here. John, let me start with you. Uh, do these missing text messages seem suspicious to you at all? I mean, is, is there any way that you think this is all above board? 
Well, it's either something nefarious where somebody was trying to destroy evidence or it was real incompetence. And I would not rule out the possibility of incompetence. Those things happen in the government. But <laughs> if so, it was a screw up on just a grand scale because this information is really important both to the January 6th committee in the House and potentially to the Justice Department as well. So, uh, you know, it's hard to understand how this happened. Yeah, I mean, Victoria, what are the legal ramifications here uh, if the texts were purposefully deleted? And it seems like there may be legal ramifications, even if it was accidental. Well, if it's intentional, then it's a felony. Um, you can't destroy government records. But, but there's also another aspect I want to get into, which is that if he's uh, Chad Wolf is in DHS and he's communicating to the White House, there's a whole separate document, you know, retrieval system, the Presidential Record Act that kicks in. And so you'd see it protected over there, too. And there are redundant systems in both of these bodies. So I don't know. I agree with Mr. Wood, you know, that stupidity may be the, you know, explanatory variable here. But it's getting to look very suspicious because what happens in my experience, I was a baby lawyer on Iran-Contra. People do end up when they're about to be caught destroying documents. Very, um, some interesting uh, perspective there. Uh, so former White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney met with the January 6th committee yesterday. This is what he told CNN about the types of questions that he was asked. Watch. Clearly, they're trying to figure out more about uh, how it is perhaps Rudy Giuliani or, or Sidney Powell got the access to the president of the United States that they did, how folks like Mike Lindell had access, the role of people like Peter Navarro, that sort of inner circle of people that have been described by others as the crazies. How did they get the access that they did when they did? So, John, based on what you know about the committee's workings, why do you think they would be pursuing this line of questioning with Mulvaney? Yeah, so the, some people uh, who are witnesses have said there were two camps. They've used different language to describe them, but some have described them as team normal and team crazy. And so the question is, you know, how did team crazy get this kind of access? And I think in particular, they're interested in a, a meeting. I think it was December 18th. It was the one that was late in the evening and then went in the early in the next morning. And then the president ended up issuing his tweet about uh, January 6th and said, we'll be wild. Right. And that's one where the uh, White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, found out about the meeting and he and some other lawyers uh, forced their way into it. And the question is, you know, why was the president going out of his way to listen to the so-called team crazy instead of to his own lawyers, uh, both on the campaign and in the White House, who were telling him the election was not stolen and that he could not change the outcome of the election after the Electoral College had voted? It raises so many questions. So, Victoria, CNN exclusively reported yesterday uh, that Justice Department, Department prosecutors are preparing to fight in court to force some of these former White House officials to testify about Trump's conversations around January 6th. And, of course, one of the big issues here, the central issue, really, is executive privilege. I mean, does the Justice Department have a strong case? Are they standing on solid ground? I think they've got a, a strong case. Um, you know, the problem here will be time, but there's only one precedent here and it's Nixon. And that case basically says that the president doesn't have an absolute privilege not to respond in a criminal investigation. And so when you have a criminal case, different rules apply than when you have a congressional investigation. That's when you have the highest need for the information. So in that context, it seems to me very unlikely if the president himself or a former president does not have a full absolute immunity, which they don't under United States versus Nixon, that their advisors would have a full uh, immunity. And the DOJ filed a document in the Meadows case saying that, in fact, they have a qualified immunity, which means that 
if there's a good enough reason, that immunity goes away. Fascinating. Uh, One other thing, John, sources say that the committee has been engaging with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and they're hoping that he'll come in for an interview that could possibly happen next week. Um, As we've reminded our viewers, you were a senior investigator on this team. What can Mike Pompeo offer the committee that others can't? Why do they want to talk to him? Yeah, he's probably got a lot of insight into what Donald Trump's mental state was leading up to and then after January 6th. And uh, I think that the committee wants to know whether Mike Pompeo had any concerns about whether Donald Trump was fit to serve as president. Now, Secretary Pompeo uh, appears to have political ambitions and may want to run for president. So the last thing he's going to want to do is have to testify, uh, particularly if it's going to force him to say anything negative about Donald Trump. Yeah, it's as as the political uh, reporter in me is fascinated by the fact that he may ultimately be forced to speak on camera before the committee. John, Victoria, thank you both uh, very much for your time today. Up next, the disastrous flooding in eastern Kentucky. Much of the water rising at night while most people were asleep. Locals say even they still don't know who's among the missing. Plus, Russia responds. We've got CNN exclusive reporting about who the Kremlin now wants in exchange for Americans Paul Whelan and WNBA star Brittany Griner. In our national lead, the death toll from flash flooding in eastern Kentucky now stands at 16, with worries it's going to go higher. Rescue crews are still trying to reach hard-hit areas. Thousands are without power, and hundreds have lost everything. It's yet another powerful reminder of how the climate crisis is amplifying weather events to the extreme. CNN's Joe Johns now with a firsthand look at the devastation. Our little room completely crushed. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Tammy Eversall's home in Perry County, now in the middle of Squabble Creek. Like her, hundreds of families have lost everything in the floods in eastern Kentucky. No water, no electricity, no nothing. Joe Cress is one of the lucky ones, but he said many of his neighbors lost their homes. All the houses gone. I mean, they just washed away. I mean, people in them, I mean, we don't even know how many's missing at this point. It happened in the middle of the night. I mean, nobody really got a warning. I mean, that's just a big problem. It just happened so quick, everybody got washed away. Nearly 300 people cut off by the flooding have been rescued so far, according to the governor. The devastation widespread. Debris along this creek. Broken bridges. Downed trees. I've never seen this before. In all the years I live here, I have never seen this. Never. The storm wiped out power, breaking down communication. The area of this storm, it's totally annihilated our infrastructure. Water, uh, telephone, internet, uh, electricity, all the basic roads, all the basic things you would build a community around have disappeared. And it's not over yet. More rain is expected. Eastern Kentucky has a slight to moderate risk of flash flooding through Friday evening. I've certainly done three plus uh, flights and or tours uh, over flooded areas. This is by far the worst. After flying over the hard hit region, the governor delivered more grim news. I have received notice that uh, they've located the bodies of those four children. It means we've got at least six dead children. And um, that's hard. Uh, hundreds of homes, uh, their ball fields, their parks, businesses, 
under more water than I think any of us have ever seen in that area. Absolutely impassable, uh, numerous spots. So just devastating. And not out of the woods yet here in eastern Kentucky by any stretch of the imagination. Not only did we have the flash flooding event that led to the loss of life and property, we also have the issue of the utilities, gas, water, electric, all out in places, just compounding the misery. And everybody's watching the sky because the last thing anybody needs is more rain. Casey, back to you. Of course. Joe Johns, thanks very much for that report. Up next, a CNN exclusive. Putin makes his move. The Kremlin's counteroffer to a U.S. proposal to get Americans Paul Whelan and WNBA star Brittany Griner back home. I pressed the Kremlin to accept the substantial proposal that we put forth on the release of Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner. Secretary of State Antony Blinken today spoke with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov for the first time since the Ukraine war began. Blinken said he pressured Lavrov to accept the U.S. proposal to swap a convicted Russian arms dealer for two Americans who are being held in Russian custody, Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner. CNN's Fred Pleitkin joins us now from Moscow, where Russia is countering the U.S. proposal. Fred, what's Russia asking for? Hi there, Casey. Well, all this is happening behind closed door, but closed doors. But apparently, a couple of weeks ago, when the U.S. came forward uh, with this offer to exchange Russian arms dealer Victor Boot for Paul Whelan and for Brittany Griner, the Russians came with a counter offer through back channels. And this is according to information from our own Natasha Bertrand. The Russians apparently also asking for someone who is in jail in Germany. His name is uh, Vadim Krasikov, and he was uh, arrested in 2019 for murdering someone in central Berlin and then convicted in 2021. And the Germans say, and a German court said, that this murder was directed and organized by Russian security services. The Russians obviously have vehemently denied that. But this is a prisoner who's of the utmost importance to the Germans, apparently also someone the Russians asked for. The Russians themselves obviously remaining very tight-lipped about this. It was quite interesting because after speaking to Secretary of State Blinken, uh, Sergei Lavrov, he came out and he said that he urged the United States to return to what they they call quiet diplomacy. Obviously, the Russians want to deal with all this behind closed doors, Casey. So what has the U.S. response been to all of this? Mm. Yeah. So again, all of this obviously happening uh, behind closed doors. But what we have found out is that the U.S. Uh, didn't think that this was a serious offer that the Russians were making. Also, because, of course, Krasikov is in German custody. He's not a prisoner of the United States. However, I spoke to a senior German government source, and that source tells me that the U.S. did make a quiet inquiry about Krasikov, essentially asking whether or not something like that could even be possible. It wasn't something that was then widely discussed on German government levels and certainly never reached the top of German government officials. But there certainly was an inquiry by the United States that you know, didn't go very far and wasn't taken very seriously, but it did happen. And that does underscore how serious the administration is about trying to get Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner out of Russian custody, Casey. Truly does. Fred Plaikin in Moscow. Thanks very much for that report. Ahead here is Taiwan on the itinerary. It's still a mystery as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi leaves for Asia. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi heads to Asia today on the heels of President Biden's call with Chinese President Xi Jinping. And sources tell CNN it's still uncertain whether Pelosi's trip will include a stop in Taiwan. 
CNN's MJ Lee's live at the White House. MJ, does the Biden administration support this possible Taiwan visit by the House Speaker? Well, Casey, what I can tell you is that this potential trip to Taiwan has become a big headache for this White House over the last couple of days. It has received many, many questions from reporters about whether the White House supports this trip, opposes this trip, has concerns about this trip. And the White House has essentially said that it's not going to comment on a trip that's not been confirmed. And yesterday, if you'll recall, they wouldn't even say whether this issue came up when President Biden and Chinese President Xi had a conversation that lasted over two hours. Now, the other thing that we have been hearing more from the White House is this idea that Nancy Pelosi is a lawmaker, is a member of Congress, and that the legislative branch is completely separate from the executive branch, and essentially that the president is not going to tell a lawmaker what they can or cannot do. But there's no question, Casey, that this issue has become a real flashpoint in U.S.-Chinese relations and Beijing, making it very clear that they are very unhappy about the possibility of such a trip. And not just any lawmaker, uh, the Speaker of the House in this case. Um, MJ, do you think the White House is prepared for backlash from China if this does happen? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, yesterday you'll recall that according to Chinese state media, President Xi told President Biden, if you play with fire, you get burned. And when we asked a senior administration official about that and whether that was perceived as a threat by the U.S., they wouldn't even engage that question. And what we heard today from National Security Council uh, spokesperson John Kirby uh, is that we've seen no physical, tangible indications of anything untoward with respect to Taiwan. Now, he also also reiterated that U.S.'s policy when it comes to Taiwan is unchanged, that the U.S. supports the one China policy. And he also said that China's heightened rhetoric on all of this is simply unnecessary. Uh, But I do think it's worth reminding everyone that it's President Biden himself who told reporters days ago that the military does not think this is a good idea right now. Casey. Really interesting. MJ Lee at the White House. Thanks so much for that report. So If there truly are lazy dog days of summer, um, you really wouldn't know it right now on Capitol Hill. There is suddenly a rush to get a series of high profile bills through. Right now, the House is debating a bill that would ban assault style weapons, a vote set for next hour. It's expected to pass, but its future is unlikely in the Senate. And then there is new climate, a new climate and economic bill. And then, of course, the burn pits legislation. Let's dig into all of this. And uh, Ron Brownstein, let me start with you. So the ban on assault weapons that Democrats are voting on. I mean, we know that it's going nowhere in the Senate. I mean, why spend the energy on this, especially when it may put some Democrats in a tough spot? Well, first of all, it is just an incredible measure of how much the, the parties have resorted over the last generation. When this passed in 94, there were 77 House Democrats who voted against it and 38 House Republicans who voted for it. It's going to pass. I'm with impressed a, you have those numbers. Yeah, yeah well, I, I, I looked them up again. I, I mean, I, unfortunately, I covered that in 1994. Um, you know, today, it's going to pass with, what, a four-vote majority in the House. They are going to pass this. And yep. they have passed virtually every bill in this Congress with only a one or two dissenting votes among Democrats. In fact, it's the highest level of party loyalty Democrats have ever had in, kind of in, in the modern era. And it reflects the fact that it is now an urban-suburban Party, right, and and so they are just there are just many fewer of the rural Democrats who would be uncomfortable with this, and I think they do believe that guns post Uvalde, abortion post Dobbs, and January sixth are changing the equation in the election, particularly for suburban voters and giving them more of a fighting chance 
than it looked like they would have a few months ago. So this is just one more chance to kind of draw that line with a Republican Party that is increasingly revolving around the priorities of a culturally conservative base. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And Jeremy, you know, another piece of this is, of course, trying to get Democrats motivated because we've seen that they haven't been uh, as motivated to get out to vote. And of course, you have Senator Manchin suddenly backing this massive reconciliation package on climate in particular seems to have gotten uh, Democrats excited, but also uh, the economy. I mean, how, how much does this contribute to them potentially not having as, as bad of a midterm year as we might have expected? Well, look, if you talk to folks at the White House, they're certainly hoping that all of these pieces of legislation put together will give them a, a, a better chance when it comes to the midterms, give them a new opportunity uh, to tell voters, look at what we've been able to accomplish, and particularly when those things have happened in more recent memory, right? We always know that the closer you are to Election Day, that's the best time to kind of get voters' uh, attention. Um, so, so look, they, they do hope that this will that this will help them. I would say, you know, despite President Biden coming out, despite hearing from Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, uh, it's not a done deal yet. And, and we've seen a lot of celebratory moves so far, but we'll see whether or not they may be premature. Well, and I mean, Kirsten, just take Senator Dick Durbin. He's suddenly out with COVID. I mean, a right. 50-50 Senate, this is, I mean, they've really got to thread that needle. You can't afford a single person not being there. And also Kirsten Cinema, as usual. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, being quiet on what she's going to do. And so that's sort of out there. Everybody, you know, hoping that she's going to come around. And Democrats say that they believe that she will ultimately vote for this. But, you know, we, we don't really know until it actually happens. So I think it's it's a very substantively important bill. And it is something that's very important to the base of the Democratic Party. So particularly young voters who have been very frustrated and very angry where climate change is one of their top issues. And to show that there is something that's being done around this, um, it's, you know, a big investment. I think the biggest investment that's ever been made in terms of climate change for the U.S. government. So it actually is a big substantive substantive win and a political win. Can I just add one point quickly there? I mean, one reason 2018 was better than usual for Democrats in the midterm is precisely because many more young people showed up than is typical in the midterm. 2014, 2010, cratering turnout among young people were a big reason why Republicans made so many gains. Up until this, Democrats have not had a lot of positive uh, messaging for young people. And they, they could run on the negative of Republicans want to take away, away your abortion rights right. or Republicans are too conservative on guns. But Joe Biden's at like 30, 35 percent among young people. This is really the first thing, I think, one of the only major things they've had where they can kind of affirmatively say to young people, your vote mattered. Well, and I mean, Rena, I've been hearing this as I've talked to progressives and Democrats over the course of the last 48 hours. People suddenly sort of woke up and they were like, wow, we were we're pretty down on this president. But but suddenly we got something to be excited about. Yeah, things are happening. But I don't I don't know about you guys. I'm feeling some strong Christmas in July vibes Mm. this this past week, because I mean, these are reindeer games on on the Senate side in particular. I mean, what what Schumer and McConnell are fighting about, this is how we got here is so important to how we move forward this week. And I think one thing we're going to hear from Republicans is this is reckless spending. And how Republicans will message that against Democrats moving forward is just all the way into the midterms. They're going to say D's in the, in, in the swing states with your independent voters versus your base. Are you spending our money properly at a time we have runaway inflation. Expect that playbook from the Republicans. Well, certainly, you know, every every day the Republicans are talking about something other than inflation is probably not a great day for them. Uh, that's fair enough. Um, let's let's switch gears, though, from the future to um, the past, because, uh, Jeremy, you and your colleagues on the CNN White House team have new reporting uh, on Jared Kushner's upcoming book that details his, quote, West Wing war with Steve Bannon. Kushner describes Bannon this way, saying, quote, Jared, right now you are undermine you're the one undermining the president's agenda. And if you go against me, I will break you in half. Don't F with me. 
<laughs> I don't think that was blanked out in the real, uh, real life version. <laughs> no, but I, I am, I'm not going to put <laughs> yeah. those words in my mouth, but I think all of our viewers know <laughs> what it means. Bannon is reportedly, um, you know, going up against the president's son-in-law here. I mean, I, I covered this from the from the Capitol Hill side. Nobody up there likes Steve Bannon. Apparently it was even worse in the White House. Yeah, and, and look, uh, Steve Bannon was one of the first in a long line of people to learn that when you go up against Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, you're probably going to lose. And that is how it worked very often in the West Wing. Look, Jared Kushner kind of portrays himself as woefully unprepared for this media war with Bannon, who he accuses uh, in these excerpts that we've obtained of repeatedly leaking against Kushner, against his allies like Gary Cohn. But the reality is Kushner wised up to it pretty fast. Uh, and, and he was able to uh, fight that media war as well. And ultimately, he also was family. And, and in the Trump West Wing, that made all the difference. Look, Kushner also describes Bannon as a toxic figure in the West Wing. I think the reality is that, look, you, you could argue that that's true, but the West Wing itself was toxic. That's what was, that was, that's what was most toxic, and it was a toxic environment that was fostered by President Trump, and intentionally so, because he liked to watch his aides clash against each other and see who would come out on top. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, Jer- the Jared Kushner operation had some seriously <laughs> sharp knives <laughs> for, from basically the beginning. Um, Kirsten, another one of these quotes, I think, underscores what we're talking about here. Kushner writes, Stephen Miller joked to Hope and me, that's Hope Hicks, I have a plan to split up Steve Bannon's extensive workload, meaning he's going to demote him. Hope, you leak to Jonathan Swan at Axios. Jared, you call Mike Bender from the Wall Street Ooh. Journal. I'll call Jeremy Peters from the New York Times. And we're done. I mean, this is not normal, really, for a yeah. White House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sound like a really happy bunch. Um, yeah, I think that the problem with this, everybody in these stories are so awful that it's just like, go ahead and tear yourselves apart, tear each other apart, as far as I'm concerned, because they all did the things that they accuse each other of doing. You know, oh, someone was leaking. You know, I'm sorry, Jared. Uh, that's mm. not like you never leaked anything. So, yeah, it was a toxic White House. They were some of the most toxic people in it. Uh, Ron, I mean, we're spending a lot of time and energy right now focusing on the fact that Donald Trump might run again in 2024. I mean, is that what we go back to? <laughs> First of all, I'm shocked that in Jared and Ivanka's telling that they're the heroes. And that, that, that just, I'm, I'm just like speechless. You know, it is. Look, I, you know, I, Don, you know, Donald Trump has lots of self-interested reasons to announce for president as soon as he can, to, just to make it politically harder for the Justice Department or the Georgia prosecutors uh, to uh, to move against him. I think most Republicans would desperately want him to wait until after November, if at all. And here I am trying to think about whether, in the end, Donald Trump will prioritize his own interest or the party's, right. and like how that's going to sort out. What do you, you know? Look, I, the sooner we all realize in the Republican Party that Trump and company belongs nowhere near the White House, and these tales are not just palace intrigue; they're tales of an unfit administration and that he doesn't deserve to be back in it. So let's pitch him out. Let's find somebody new. Well, it's going to be up to those voters is the thing, uh, which a lot of people in the room. He's going to have a good day in Arizona next week. I I think you're absolutely right about that. It's a very, very different landscape there than in Georgia. All right. Thank you guys for a great conversation on this Friday afternoon. The state of Kansas, meanwhile, will be the first to put abortion rights on the ballot post row. But timing is critical. Why the date set for this vote could be a huge factor in its outcome. In our politics lead, Kansas will be the first state to vote on abortion rights since Roe versus Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court back in June. This crucial vote set for next week could alter the state's constitution to strip protections for the right to abortion. As CNN's Nick Valencia reports, this opens the door to restrictions or an outright ban. 
My name is Helena. I'm the field director for Kansans for Constitutional Freedom. In a small room in Wichita, the fight for abortion rights is on. Kansas will be the first state in the country to vote on whether the right to abortion is protected by the state's constitution since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Ashley All is part of the coalition working to preserve abortion access in Kansas. The amendment that is on the ballot um, will mandate government control over our private medical decisions and ultimately pave the way for a total ban on abortion. In 2019, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that the state constitution protected personal autonomy including the right of a woman to decide whether to continue a pregnancy. The ruling effectively blocked legislators from passing laws to restrict abortion access within the state. If passed on August 2nd, the so-called Value Them Both Amendment would give back power to the Republican supermajority legislature to regulate access to abortions in the state. We believe that they will, uh, if this amendment passes, they will act quickly to ban abortion outright. That has been uh, their goal for a long time. Uh, Adding to their worries, the issue is being voted on in the primary rather than the general election. In a state where registered Republicans vastly outnumber Democrats, abortion rights advocates believe the move was intentional by state conservatives to limit non-Republican turnout. I believe that it's best to have as little abortion, if not any, as possible. Abortion is a right that everyone should have access to. It's health care. I think it's really important for, I mean, all the young babies of the lives that are being saved if it passes. I don't want rights taken away. Some voters we spoke to were also concerned about the involvement of churches and religious groups. Since the vote is on an issue, not a candidate, such organizations have been allowed to campaign. The passing of the Value Them Both Amendment. Brittany Jones welcomes the support. Jones, an anti-abortion lawyer, helped write the amendment. Kansans want to ensure that moms and babies are protected, and so Kansans are very concerned uh, about this uh, push to make us an unlimited destination for abortion. Though it seems like a reaction to what the Supreme Court did with Roe, Jones and her Kansas Republican colleagues say they've been working on drafting the amendment for years. One of their main concerns, people coming from nearby places like Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas, where abortion is already outlawed to get procedures done in Kansas. The day that the decision came down, um, we had patients calling us from the waiting rooms of other health centers in other states saying our appointments were just canceled. How soon can we get in? Ashley Brink is the director of Trust Women, one of four abortion clinics in the state. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, Brink estimates more than 60% of the patients are from out of state. What we're seeing right now is, in my opinion, a national emergency. The choice on August 2nd may be local, but it will come with national implications. A vote with national implications that will be decided by a relatively small number of voters. It was today that Kansas Secretary of State released projections estimating that just 36 percent of Kansans are expected to vote in this upcoming primary. And while that seems high for a primary, it's not, Casey, when you consider what a big issue this is and the impact that it'll have on Kansans and beyond. Casey. Nick Valencia, thanks very much for that report. You bet. Still fighting the currents. 80 years old and going strong, she was once the youngest woman in Congress. Now she's making waves as she tries to head back as one of the oldest. She was a political outsider who took on the Democratic establishment. And in a huge upset, she became the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. No, this is not a profile of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is a woman who did it 50 years ago way back in 1972. 
As CNN's Athena Jones reports, after a legendary career in politics, law, and government, Elizabeth Holtzman is running for Congress again. I need your help on August 23rd, so please come to vote. She's been called a pioneer, a trailblazer. At 31 years old, Liz Holtzman became the youngest woman ever elected to Congress in 1972, a record she held for more than 40 years. Half a century later, she's looking for a comeback. Running in a congressional district comprised of lower Manhattan and much of Brownstone, Brooklyn, an area known for political activism. This is a new position, correct? A new district, yeah, yeah. right. No incumbent, so yeah. there are a bunch of us running. But I'm the only one who's been in Congress with a huge record of accomplishment. Holtzman served four terms, voting to impeach Richard Nixon in 1974. Ms. Holtzman. Aye. And pushing the Justice Department to begin tracking down and deporting Nazi war criminals. I was very disturbed to see the nature of the war crimes alleged to have been committed by people living in this country. Holtzman later championed abortion rights, the very issue that spurred her latest run. You're running again at age 80. Why? I'm running again because I'm very concerned about the direction of our country. And I said to myself, when I saw Justice Alito's opinion, I was enraged when I read it. And I said, I cannot sit on the sidelines. She's got so many um, firsts on her resume. Holtzman is running on her extensive experience. This is a time for someone who has a record of standing up to the right wing, taking on the right wing, and succeeding sometimes in defeating them. That's my record. She's facing a crowded field that includes a former impeachment lawyer and a sitting congressman who moved to the new district. Her long-shot candidacy met with praise and some skepticism. I'm not concerned about her age at all, and furthermore, she has a wealth of experience. I am very conflicted about Liz Holtzman. Really, tell me why. I think she's a fabulous person, a real role model. She did accomplish so much. But there is a sense, now I'm a senior citizen, there is a sense that particularly the Democratic Party needs to bring in new people okay. or younger people. Mm -hmm. Is that just ageism, plain and simple? Well, some of it is. I mean, I think some of it is a preconception that someone my age can't do the job. But I think when you see people watching me campaign in the hot sun, they understand I can do this job. An avid kayaker, Holtzman says it keeps her fit and energized. So is this your answer to those who, are, who question your, you know, whether you have the energy and fitness to handle the strenuous business of politics? Definitely, definitely. It's also fun. Athena Jones, CNN, New York. Our thanks to Athena Jones for that report. All right, coming up this Sunday, Jake Tapper has Democratic Senator Joe Manchin on State of the Union, along with Republican Senator Pat Toomey. That's Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and again at noon right here on CNN. You can follow me on Twitter at Casey or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, check out the podcast. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And don't go anywhere. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in The Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.